Welcome to Murder Bucket. I'm your host, Hannah, and this is the podcast where I dive deep into murders, paranormal activity, abductions, kidnappings, and weird stuff. Let's see what I'm going to pull out of the bucket this week. Good evening, everyone. It is Tuesday here at the Murder Bucket Podcast. If this is your first time listening, you might not know what we do here on Tuesdays. Right now, we are in a series called the Cold Case Road Trip. We travel to all 50 states, D.C., and five inhabited territories, talking about two cold cases each week. Tonight, we are on stops 33 and 34, and we are traveling to Missouri and Delaware. But first, let's do our weekend slash week recap. I think I mentioned last week that our office opened to the public for the first time since COVID-19, and we were all a little iffy about how our first week was going to go. We thought that it was going to be super chaotic, that there might be angry customers coming in, and we were all bracing for just a hell week, essentially. But honestly, it was really good. We didn't have too much chaos. I think we only had maybe one upset customer, which was handled fairly quickly. And all in all, it went really well. Now, before COVID happened, we would always have customers come back to our desks and sit with us while we process their permits. And before we opened, we were given the option to continue to do that or have them sit in the lobby and we would just take their paperwork process their permits, and then send them on their way. There are a couple of people that currently do that where they have the people sitting in the lobby. And I was going to do that only because I'm still fairly new at my position. And I didn't want to, I guess, look dumb in front of a customer in case I was confused about their permit or had questions. But I decided to just have people come back to my desk and it has actually been really good. Even though I still ask questions uh, from one of my coworkers, I haven't had a customer get mad at me or think that I didn't know how to do my job. And it's really been good because I can tell you that my anxiety level was pretty high, but it has gotten a lot better. On Saturday, we had friends come over that evening for my husband's 35th birthday. We grilled, played games, hung out outside, shot off a few fireworks, and it was a really wonderful evening. And then on Sunday was his actual birthday, so we went to church. I played softball. We won, by the way. And then we went out to dinner that evening with a couple of our friends, and it was just overall really great. Then yesterday, I took a personal day off of work. We get five of those each year, and we can't roll them over to the next year. We have to use them. So some of us just take them periodically through the year. So I actually took one yesterday. I honestly just got a few things done around the house, played a couple games on the computer, had an HVAC guy come to the house to price out a few things, went to a super easy doctor's appointment, and then 
I met one of my friends, Shelby, at the batting cages up here to practice hitting some balls. And then her and I went out to dinner and it was really fun. And now we're here, we're hanging out, and we're going to talk about some cold cases. Let's get started. Stop 33, Missouri. Shirley Levitt, Susie Stretter, and Stacy McCall disappeared from Springfield, Missouri on June 7, 1992. Let's go over the details. On June 6, 1992, Susie and Stacy graduated from Kickapoo High School. They met up later that evening and were planning on staying in a hotel in Branson overnight and then visit the Whitewater Amusement Park. Stacy called her mother to let her know that they decided to spend the night with a friend in Battlefield instead. While staying with their friend Janelle Kirby, a noise complaint was filed and the police were requested to come. Stacy and Susie decided to leave because of this and the fact that it was too crowded. They drove to Susie's home, located in the 1700 block of East Delmer Street. Susie's mom, Cheryl, was home that evening. Janelle and her boyfriend drove to the house the next morning when the girls failed to show up at her house for their planned trip. When they got there, they found the front door was unlocked and no signs of anyone being at home. But everyone's vehicle was parked in the driveway. They noticed that the porch light was broken, and without thinking, they cleaned it up. Police believe that they might have discarded possible evidence. When they went inside, they noticed that the family dog, Cinnamon, appeared very agitated. While inside, Janelle answered a phone call, which she described as strange and disturbing. The caller, an unidentified male, made sexual innuendos. She hung up immediately, but then received another phone call. This one was also strange and disturbing. When Stacy's mother, Janice, was unable to reach her daughter, she also drove to the house. When she arrived, she noticed that each of the ladies' purses were on the floor in the living room, and she saw her daughter's clothing neatly folded nearby. She immediately called the police from the home telephone to report them missing. While waiting for the police to arrive, she checked the answering machine, claimed that she listened to a strange message, but then it was erased on accident. The seriousness of the situation wasn't realized until roughly 24 hours had passed. Officers left a note on Cheryl's door asking her to contact them once her and the girls returned home so that the missing persons report could be canceled. Investigators took note that Cheryl and Susie's cigarettes and lighters were left behind. Another weird thing they found were that all three women's purses were together on the stairs. The blinds in Susie's room were pulled apart. They believed someone might have been looking outside. Investigators discovered that 20 or so family and friends tainted the crime scene the day that the women disappeared by visiting the home. An extensive search was done of the surrounding area, but no evidence was found. A witness reported to the police several days later that they observed a woman matching Susie's description driving an older model Dodge van on June 7th. They went on to claim that she seemed terrified as an unseen male voice told her 
Don't do anything stupid. Another witness also reported seeing the Dodge van in a different area of Springfield. He stated that he saw a blonde female sitting in the driver's seat in the parking lot of a local grocery store. He wrote down the license plate on a newspaper, but threw the paper away before contacting the police. A server at George's Steakhouse reported to the police that the women were in the restaurant between 1 a.m. and 3 a.m. on June 7th. They stated that Susie appeared drunk when the group left and Cheryl was trying to calm her down. The police have never confirmed this sighting. In the area of Greene County, a witness reported hearing a woman screaming and the squeal of tires in the early morning hours of June 7th. That area was searched, but no evidence was found. Janice made missing persons posters, went on radio stations, talked to local media outlets, put up billboards, and raised over $100,000 for a reward. Her husband, Stu, also canvassed the city looking for Stacy. Cheryl's son and Susie's older brother, Bart, was ruled out as a suspect early in the investigation. A police officer who was on the original investigation theorized that someone took the dog out of the yard in an effort to gain access to the residence, then knocked on the door and pretended to have rescued the dog. It's possible that whoever opened the door was overpowered by the attacker. Cheryl and Susie relocated to Springfield from Seattle in 1980 after she divorced her first husband. They had only lived in their home on East Del Mar Street two months before their disappearance. Cheryl worked at New Attitudes Hair Salon and had over 250 clients at the time and was a model employee. She was described by her family as a private person who had a very close relationship with her daughter. In 1997, their family had them declared legally deceased. Stacy was planning on attending Southwest Missouri State University in the fall. She was employed as a secretary and receptionist at Springfield Gymnastics. She also modeled wedding gowns for the total bride in the Brentwood Center. She was described by her family as conscientious of her appearance. At the time of her disappearance, she was not in a relationship. In December of 1992, an unknown man contacted America's Most Wanted hotline with information about the women's disappearance. The caller stated to have prime knowledge of the abductions. The call was disconnected when the operator attempted to link up with the Springfield investigators. The police did make a public appeal for that unknown man to contact them, but he never did. KY3 investigative reporter Dennis Graves traveled to Texas and interviewed Robert Craig Cox because he told investigators that he knew the three women had been murdered and their bodies had been buried. Dennis and Robert had the following exchange during an interview. Cox, I know that they are dead. I'll say that, and I know that. Graves, that's not a theory. Cox, I just know that they are dead. That's not my theory. I just know that. There's no doubt about that. Robert then refused to talk anymore. This interview was presented before a grand jury in 1996 
but no charges were handed down. In 2002, a concrete company in Webster County was searched by cadaver dogs. Bones were discovered, but after they were tested, they were too old to belong to any of the women. In April of 2003, a tip came in that led investigators to farmland south of Cassville. A backhoe was used to dig holes, but only two pieces of evidence were found. Blood and a section of a green vehicle. The blood was sent to a specialized lab, but after extensive testing, the results were found as inconclusive. In 2007, police received a tip that the women were buried in the foundation of the south parking garage of Cox Hospital. Rick Norland, a mechanical engineer, scanned the corner of the parking garage with ground-penetrating radar. He did find three anomalies roughly the same size. Lisa Cox, a police spokesperson, stated that the tip provided no evidence or logical reasoning behind this theory. Also, the garage was constructed in September of 1993, over a year after the disappearances. She stated that digging up the area and reconstructing the structure would be extremely costly. Without 100% knowledge of the women being there, the dig could not be done. Investigators later determined that this lead was not credible. But what were the three anomalies that Rick found? I haven't been able to locate any other information that states that the garage was ever dug up. And I personally think that someone should do it. In an article on People.com, Janice is quoted saying, I thought that they would be home right away. I was angry we couldn't find her. There's not a word called closure in the dictionary for families missing someone. My baby is gone. We want some justice. Janice and Stu have never declared Stacy dead. She is quoted in an article on KY3.com saying, Until I know 100% that Stacy is dead, I will never declare her dead. They're going to have to find some remains somewhere before I call her legally dead. It's not for any reason other than if I do and she's not dead, think of how mad she'd be when she gets back. In 2018, Brian Brown and his father, Alan, published a book titled Gone in the Night, the story of the Springfield Three. This book explores details of the case via a father and son's fictional search for the truth. The case has been featured on shows such as 48 Hours and America's Most Wanted. There is currently a $42,000 reward with information that would either locate the women, their bodies, or whoever hurt them. A bench was dedicated to the women in Victims Memorial Garden in Springfield's Phelps Grove Park in 1997. Cheryl was last seen wearing a floral print dress She had blonde hair and brown eyes. Her ears were pierced, and she was a smoker. Susie was last seen wearing a white t-shirt, jeans, and pink shoes. She had blonde hair and brown eyes. She has a scar on her right forearm. Both of her ears were pierced. Stacy was last seen wearing a yellow shirt, flowered bikini pants, 14-inch gold chain necklace, 
a gold initial ring, and a small diamond ring. She had blonde hair and blue eyes. Both of her ears were pierced. If you have any information regarding the disappearance of Cheryl, Susie, and Stacy, you are encouraged to contact the Springfield Police Department. Tonight is our monthly women-owned spotlight, featuring the musical memoir called The Magic of Ordinary Things. Gina Harris describes her memoir as, If you could see the ones you loved one more time after they died, what would you say? What would you want to hear? Well, Gina got the chance. Her musical memoir spans 43 years, two parents, a singing teacher, and a lonesome cowboy named Dietz. Everyone you miss is waiting inside you. She has performed The Magic of Ordinary Things several times before the COVID-19 pandemic hit and then has spent the last year turning it into a podcast that is going to launch in August of this year. Gina started this after she lost her parents and her beloved singing teacher and felt lost. She thought that her whole world was over. She decided to put all of her feelings, memories, and dreams into a musical memoir that became her podcast. You can check out a link to her website, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook in my show notes. And we're back. Stop 34, Delaware. Now, I did a lot of research to try and find a cold case or missing persons case that had enough information for tonight's episode, but strangely enough, there wasn't a lot. I will be doing the same thing I did for Puerto Rico and naming 15 people who have disappeared and the information that I could find about them. If you happen to have extensive information regarding a cold case in Delaware that might need more attention, you are welcome to email me. Song Joseph 20 disappeared from Rehoboth Beach on June 8, 1975. She was last seen wearing a red halter top with green and blue flowers, blue checkered slacks, brown and white sandals, and a gold diamond wedding band. Benjamin Archer, 32, disappeared from Delaware City on March 2, 2016. He was last seen wearing a green and white polo shirt, gray yoga pants, and either camouflage rubber boots or was possibly barefoot. Jontel Johnson, 15, disappeared from Newark on February 3, 2010. She was five months pregnant at the time of her disappearance and may be in need of medical attention. She has brown hair and brown eyes. William Lank, 42, disappeared from Wilmington on December 13, 1992. He was last seen wearing a blue full-length winter coat, a red shirt, khaki pants over gray flannel sweatpants, red socks, work boots, and a gold wedding ring. Tina Kemp, 14, disappeared from Felton on February 3, 1979. She was last seen wearing a white sweater, a red and white flannel shirt, blue jeans, red and white sneakers, a leather strap on her left arm with the name Eric on it, and a gold ring with white rhinestones. 
Paul Warsham, 82, disappeared from Wyoming on July 23, 2007. He was last seen wearing a pink or red sweater, brown pants, a denim jacket, an orange hat, a belt with a small square buckle, a Timex watch, dog tags with his name, and a gold wedding band. April Walker, 30, disappeared from Newcastle on November 8, 2004. She was last seen wearing a black and white flannel jacket, blue jeans, and white sneakers. Young Kim, 53, disappeared from Rehoboth Beach on October 25, 2009. He was last seen wearing a dark blue raincoat and waiter boots. Sandra Andrews, 44, disappeared from Seaford on November 16, 1990. She was last seen wearing a white nurse's uniform, a brown hooded coat, a gold necklace, an RN pen on her lapel, and a Mickey Mouse watch. Damon Emery, 22, disappeared from Wilmington on February 27, 1996. He was last seen wearing a gray Nautica sweatsuit, a black leather jacket, Nike sneakers, and a ring on his pinky finger. Marion Brown, 46, disappeared from Sussex County on October 11, 1970. She was last seen wearing a sweater, a dress, shoes, and a wedding ring. She was also carrying a brown pocketbook. Michael Selly, 23, disappeared from Port Penn on May 19, 2018. He was last seen wearing a long-sleeved burgundy shirt, gray sweatpants, white socks, and brown slippers. Twallier Jenkins, 33, disappeared from Wilmington on September 7, 2012. She was last seen wearing a full-length brown or red dress. Daniel Lodovicki, 62, disappeared from Wilmington on December 7, 2019. He has an unspecified medical condition and needs medication which he did not have with him. He has gray hair and brown eyes. And finally, Kathleen Meyer, 26, disappeared from Newcastle on September 19, 1988. She was last seen wearing a white top with three-quarter length sleeves, blue jeans, a silver necklace and bracelet, no shoes or socks, and she was carrying a black purse. If you have any information regarding the people that were listed in tonight's episode, you are encouraged to contact the Delaware State Police. Thank you for taking the time to listen to tonight's episode. Please enjoy this promo from my friends at the Pop Culture Hootenanny Podcast. Hey, it's Dan from the Pop Culture Hootenanny Podcast, and I just want to give you a little intro breakdown of what our show is. We're kind of a movie review podcast. We talk about random nonsense that comes up from the backstories, behind-the-scenes stories, and whatever else we want to talk about during our episodes. Uh, Here's a few clips to check us out. There's a... 
why do we cheer on, and this is a question for what we can discuss right now, why do we cheer on sociopaths in movies where we know that they're doing wrong in almost every single way? Because we like the hijinks that ensue. Because it's, yeah, we we like the hijinks that ensues, right? Art and Tony. Art and Tony. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They're the best written characters. Right? You know what I mean? Like, She's trying to make amends and saying the kids would love to have you over and I would love to have you over. And then as soon as he gets that okay, he just starts digging into the fact that she changed her name, right? And I'm not saying that it's right or wrong. This is the 80s. Changing your name in the 80s is kind of a big fucking statement. We have so many jaded tropes in our head. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, there are certain movies that will try to make something look serious. And for a younger generation, it might be their version of, let's say, Arnold calling out the Predator. One, two, three, four, pop culture. Who can eat pop culture? Who can eat pop culture? Who can eat pop culture? Who can Thanks for sticking around to the end. I hope you have enjoyed tonight's episode. Be sure to check us out on Instagram at MurdBucket, Twitter at The Murder Bucket, and Facebook at BucketMurd. Check out weekly posts regarding new episodes and chime in on the weekend slash week recaps. I would love to get to know you better. Have a great day.